Welcome back, listeners, to Season 3. I'm Jackie Marie Byer, your host. If you're new to the show, I hope you subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing. Hey, listeners, have you been to Growers.co, James Fortier's newest venture? He's got an amazing magazine featuring the inspiring farmers who have followed in his footsteps, taken his classes, put his practices into work that he's highlighting in a great printed magazine. He's got tools that he's designed that he's developed from um, looking at tools around the world while he did his book tour that just he uses on his farm. I mean, it's amazing the information on his website. You can learn about how to use these tools. They're totally affordable. I'm telling you, the Canadian Exchange is great right now. Um, and farmware that's stylish, it's comfortable, but most of all, it's practical for working in the garden. I know one of my biggest barriers was garden shoes. He's got boots, coats. Um, and you definitely want to get a small scale farmers are changing the world t-shirt either for yourself, get one for your favorite CSA or farmer market vendor. It'll make them feel good. It'll make you feel good and support growers.co. That man has changed our world for the better. He's been so generous with his time, his energy and, um, deserving of, uh, uh your shopping dollars. So growers.co. Welcome to the Green Organic Garden. It is Saturday, November 21st, 2020, even though you probably won't hear this till 2021. But I have an amazing guest on my line. I have been promoting Jesse Frost's No-Till Market Farmer podcast. I think you all should be listening to that because it's not just for market farmers. And he has been talking about our guest today, Daniel Mays, who wrote the No-Till Vegetable Gardener. Is that what it's called? Sorry. <laughs> the No-Till Organic Vegetable Farm. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I think you're going to learn so much from him. And like, I've been reading his biography. He has a Waldorf background and a Quaker educations and just, he's a rock star millennial and him and his wife, they have two new children and just, um, they are just the people, you know, I love to talk about. He's going to drop a ton of golden seeds today. So welcome to the show, Daniel. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Okay, well, I'm going to be done, and it is your turn to talk. So tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm a farmer. I'm in southern Maine. I uh, run Frith Farm. We're just south of Portland, Maine. Um, it's a, uh, a very small but productive farm. Uh, we grow about three acres of um, organic vegetables, herbs, and flowers. Um, we run a CSA. We have about 200 families pick up, uh, you know, produce each week of the season here. And uh, we do our local farmer's market and we sell to um, three or four natural food stores in the area. Um, and yeah, we grow, yeah, three acres of vegetables with um, a crew of about nine people. So we, we uh, you know, it's kind of a, a community-based farm, um, both with its employees and also just a lot of uh, you know, customer involvement, uh, people come and volunteer, pick up their shares, uh, their kids run around. Um, so, so yeah, it's a little bit of a different farm than your um, sort of standard tractor-based, uh, you know, wholesale operation. Um, we don't actually use a tractor in the fields. Uh, we do most things by hand. Um, so it's uh, pretty relatable, I think, for the backyard gardener, as well as for um, hopefully inspiring for uh, small commercial growers as well. 
and southern maine my husband and i were looking at a farm in ripley maine which is up by johnny's so probably a little north of there a yeah couple a of couple years of ago. hours north yeah um so, so why didn't you end up there well, we live on a 12, on the last 20 acres of the 1200 acre ranch my husband grew up on and he built our house and like, I don't know, he wanted to move to Maine because he said, you guys have more progressive politics and I don't know, he just had me Google it one day and sure enough, you know, the first place I find is this 175 acre um, piece of property with a 14 irrigated acres and two houses I was so in love with it. We, I actually paid Andrew Mefford to go meet the realtor and like check it out for us because I couldn't afford to fly there. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, my husband's never going to leave his property. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, it's I good don't to dream know. anyway, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I, I mean, we, I, I can't imagine. I don't know. Just, uh, I don't know. I, I grew up on Long Island, um, and so my, I thought it might be nicer to be a little closer to my family. At least you could drive there in a day. Maybe they would come visit us more. I was dreaming about turning the, the main house into, like, this organic education center because I, I could just, like, I could hear the voices of people talking and, like, chatting and us having, like, you know, potluck dinners together and, like, I was like 14 irrigated acres, you know, what could we grow there? And then there was like this little cabin that I thought we could live in. And, um, but I don't know. Anyway, uh, how big did you say your place was? So the, the whole property is 14 acres, um, but it, we're growing on three, um, you know, cultivating three. There's another couple acres of, of pasture around the edges, but most, the, the rest of the property is in woods. So tell us about something that grew well this year. Yeah, um, I'd say we had a really good uh, fall carrot harvest. That's always nice because we grow a lot of carrots. Um, so we had a warm fall. Um, so the carrots really sized up nicely and um, and just tasted delicious. And yeah, so that that's good going into winter. We have the, the walk-ins are, are pretty stuffed full of uh, carrots and other root crops. Do you know, we just harvested carrots yesterday and the day before here in Montana. We've already had freeze, several snows, and then it all kind of melted and warmed up this week. And my husband got these volunteers that were like three, four inches in diameter, just huge carrots. We had a really good carrot and potato harvest this year, too. I'm like curious about your walk-ins. Like, how big are your walk-ins? Like, how many carrots can you store in there? And how long does that last? How long do you yeah, go? So, like, do you sell at a market or a CSA? Yeah, so we sell the farmer's market and CSA just during the growing season. So uh, June through October. And then in the off season, we only sell to natural food stores. Um, oh, how interesting. So, yeah, we sell, uh, I guess it's not quite wholesale because they're just local you know, retailers. Um, but, uh, yeah, we sell right through the winter every, you know, twice a week, right through the winter, we make deliveries. Um, and we have three different walk-ins. Um, I started small. My first walk-in was just eight, eight by eight feet, little, uh, little cube. Um, and then the next, you know, quickly outgrew that within a year or so. And then the next walk-in is actually a, 
a shipping container, an insulated shipping container with a air conditioner unit on it as the as the cooler. Um, and that's eight feet by 20 feet. So that fits a, a fair bit more. Um, and then we have another third walk-in that we built more recently that's 12 by 20 feet. Um, so there's a lot of space in there that we pretty much just use for the, the winter storage. Did you build that out of a shipping container too? No, that we actually built from scratch. Um, as Like out of actually, wood? Yeah, it's out of wood. It's actually incorporated into a building um, that we put up. Um, so it's inside a building just yeah so it's you know stud walls and lots of insulation um and uh yeah insulated concrete floor yeah it's it's pretty uh it feels pretty pretty swanky after uh you know the the thrown together walk-ins um that i used early on so is that what you do you harvest all the carrots and keep them in there and then just bring like a few bundles of carrots to each local market each the natural markets stores? the natural food stores yeah yep pretty much so we yeah we we actually pre-wash all our carrots before storing them some farmers you know store them dirty and then wash them as they need them um, but i find it's easier to wash all of them at once uh, when the temperatures are a little higher so not worried about water freezing um, and then the do you have to dry them off somehow like really like that's what my husband's worried about is like washing yes. them and then drying them off Definitely. Yeah. You don't want to just, you know, pile them up wet in the walk-in. They'll, they'll rot pretty quickly. Um, so do you so like yeah, dry we... them overnight like leave them lay out or like, how do you dry them? Yeah. So we actually put them in um, crates that have mesh bottoms and sides. Um, and we'll stack those crates in the walk-in first so they can drain and get some airflow. And then maybe a week later, once the carrots are all dried, then we'll bag them up into a less ventilated, um, you know, bags or totes. So Daniel, my listeners are probably like, Jackie, we can't believe you forgot your first question. Cause I always start my show out asking like, what was your very first gardening experience? Like, who were you with? Were you a kid? Were you an adult? What'd you grow? Yeah, yeah, I was I'm trying to think back. Um, you know, we had a family garden growing up when I was really young. It was, uh, I don't know, maybe a familiar story for other <laughs> other sort of neglected gardens. Um, it's just, you know, we started with great intentions in the spring and, you know, tilled it up and planted seeds and watered them. And then before we knew it, come, you know, June, it was just like five feet tall with weeds. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, maybe we'd search in there for some, for a vegetable or two in the early summer. And by the, by mid to late summer, it was just a jungle of weeds and still a fun place to run and hide as a, as a kid. But that's, that's sort of my earliest memories of quote unquote gardening. So then how did you end up starting a farm? Did you always know you wanted to be a farmer? No. So I, I had no idea I wanted to be a farmer um, all through high school, college. Um, it was actually in grad school. Uh, um, I went to study environmental engineering. Um, so sort of looking at issues of sustainability um, at a very, in a very academic lens that I sort of started thinking, um, yeah, what, what actually felt sustainable for me in my life and what, what has the greatest impact or the, the least impact in, in negative ways um, that I could do with my life. And I had done some traveling on farms, some woofing. Um, 
abroad and some volunteering on farms. So I had a little bit of sense of what farming was, but really it was on an intellectual level that I sort of fell in love with the idea. I, I was reading lots of uh, Wendell Berry um, and just got really inspired. So I, I tried it out and I, I loved it. And, and within a year I was looking for land of my own. Where'd you get to go woofing? Yeah, I woofed in, uh, in Mexico, uh, in Belize, and, uh, but for the longest stint in um, Ecuador, in the upper Amazon of Ecuador. Belize, Mexico, Ecuador, South America. So that's got to be really different than being in southern Maine. Now, you, did you grow up in Maine? No, I grew up in I, Pennsylvania. How'd you get to Maine? The, yeah, I came to I came to college in New England. Um, I went to um, college in Connecticut, so um, I kind of fell in love with New England. I love the seasons. Um, I love the sort of small town feel of New England. Um, so when I was looking for land, I was looking all over uh, New England and and the Northeast. Um, and Maine pretty much right, rose to the top um, with just the real good support for young farmers, beginning farmers um, through MOFCA, the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, and through Maine Farmland Trust, um, statewide uh, sort of conservation organization. Um, so they, they really, uh, you know, helped me find land and, and helped uh, support me as I got started. I've heard really good things about new gardeners going to Maine, new farmers like you. You're not the first person that said that. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on all this stuff. So if there is something like what, is there something you're excited to try new or different next year? Yeah, every year is like a new, exciting journey. Um, I think uh, that's what I love about farming is there's really, uh, you don't get to to do anything exactly the same way twice because every season's different. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to experiment more with um, different interplantings with uh, different successions of crops and, and uh, especially with more cover cropping, integrating more cover crops into the gardens. What kind of cover crops are you going to try? I love learning about cover crops. Yeah, I think I'm... I'm, uh, we've kind of dialed in our, uh, our winter cover cropping with winter rye and, and, um, and, you know, winter killed cover crops like, like oats and peas and, and barley. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty excited to try some more summer cover crops, um, like the big biomass producers like, um, sorghum Sudan and cow peas, um, just different, uh, different combinations of, of the heat loving crops, uh, maybe, uh, different kinds of millet. Um, sun hemp is a good nitrogen fixer for the summer. Um, so yeah, even though we're pretty far north here in Maine and the summers don't get all that hot, we still have, you know, a couple months of pretty hot weather that um, some of those species can really help uh, build soil quickly in that uh, sort of highly active biological time. And sun hemp is different than like hemp, the cannabis crop, but you can grow that hemp for a cover crop too, can't you? Yeah, I guess you could. Um, I've I've never grown actual hemp. Yeah, sun hemp. I don't think is related. It's it's actually in the legume family, I believe. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I think. think it's a different thing. Yeah, I think I think we. Yeah, I I mean any any plant I guess can technically be a cover crop. My my idea of a cover crop is a a crop that covers the soil. So you know it's a pretty broad definition. Yeah, but 
it also is supposed to be something that's adding nutrients into the soil, right? Instead of taking them out or replacing maybe some of the nutrients that have been taken out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, um, you know, my, my understanding of, of photosynthesis, you know, any plant on the soil is, is good for the soil. That's true. Um, you know, it's pumping carbon, sucking carbon out of the air and putting it down into the soil. And, and then, yeah, it's a matter of, you know, if we're harvesting the crop, then we are removing some nutrients. Um, but if we're leaving the crop there, uh, especially if we are not disturbing the soil afterwards, um, then all that, everything it's photosynthesized and stuck in the soil is still there. So tell us a little bit about how that works and how no-till is working on your farm. Yeah, yeah. So no-till is, um, is a funny term I struggle with because it's, you know, just a lack of soil disturbance, um, but it's so much more really. It's, a, it's an effort to keep the ground fully covered at all times, ideally in a diverse mix of living plants. Um, so that, you know, just stopping tilling and leaving the earth bare and empty um, is not really the, the goal of no-till in, in my mind. Um, so, so yeah, it's working really well. We have, we have permanent beds. Uh, we keep them permanently mulched and, and we try to keep them permanently planted with, you know, a diversity of, of living plants. So if you have permanent beds, that means you have permanent walkways, right? Yes. What do you put in your walkways? Yeah, I've experimented with, with different mulches. Um, we, uh, I used to use leaves. Now we're switching more to wood chips. Uh, wood chips are a little more enduring. Um, they last a couple seasons and really help the, the fungal growth of the, of the soil. Uh We've been wondering like about like I think does it matter the kind of wood chips like my husband's really hesitant to let me put any kind of wood chips from we're in a pine forest and like he mm -hmm. he just is worried that that's going to put too much I guess would it be acidity or something into the soil or maybe we're like the opposite like our pH is like a 7.6 or an 8.3. Oh yeah so maybe some acidity could could be good for you if, if yeah that so then maybe maybe pine needles don't add acidity maybe they add the opposite. Yeah my, I think they do they can acidify um, so maybe that could be good um, but they do I mean the coniferous wood chips do support a different fungal profile than the deciduous trees so that is something to consider and, and most of the most of the fungal species that you know grow well in a in a pine forest aren't aren't really the same ones that benefit vegetables for the most part so so that's why i think it's it's good to not you know put too much uh uh yeah softwood wood chips on on the garden um if you can't if you have the choice um so I, I try to put rainial hardwood chips um, if I can get them, but often there are some some softwoods mixed in, and I don't stress that too much because it's still acting as a mulch. It's covering the soil, and because we're not tilling it in, it really doesn't have as big an impact on um, you know the, the underground soil profile. It's just they're all just staying on the surface. Mm, cool. Uh, well, as usual, he's right as always. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> he just laughs at me sometimes when I try different things in the garden. And he's just like, uh uh anyway, Daniel, tell us about something that maybe didn't work the way you wanted it to this season, something that didn't come out the way you thought it was gonna. 
Yeah, so I, I've been toying with um, not using as much row cover. So we use, we have in the past used a lot of row cover, the sort of spun bound uh, insect netting, insect barrier over crops, especially crops like arugula that, you know, the flea beetles love and, and eat little holes in and it turns lacy. And the one um, I'm so struggling this, with is kale. Yeah, so kale too, right? The the anything in the brassica family, the flea beetles can really, really, uh, you know, take a take a munch out of. Yes. Um, so so yeah, typical. So that was going to be my solution next year. Was put row, row cover, cover over yeah. it. Yeah, and that's probably a good idea because um, basically I've been trying to get away from row cover, you know, with the sort of philosophy that if we have enough diversity and healthy enough soil, the plants will be sort of naturally resistant to the pests and there'll be, you know, pest predators that'll be around and kind of keep those populations in check. Um, so I'm sort of been toying with that idea and trying to, um, you know, experiment using less row cover. And I, I went a little too fast with that this year and didn't put row cover on any of the uh, early arugula plantings. And we lost, we lost some plantings. So that's, you know, that's good for me to to dial that uh, that goal back a little bit and, and <laughs> accept that we still have some flea beetles in, on the farm. And what eats flea beetles? Just like those nematodes? Like I, I bought those men beneficial nematodes hoping that was going to help, but then Lisa Ziegler laughed at me and she's like, Jackie, <laughs> you already have the flea beetles. You can't just add the nematodes later. And, you can and then I was like, well, if I put the row cover on now, it's too late, right? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Once they're in there, you know, you can seal them in, but that doesn't really help. Um, yeah, I don't think, um, I don't think there's an easy, like, one or two species answer um, to, like, buy something and, and add it to the mix um, for controlling flea beetles that way. I, my, my goal is just to, like, have a, a wide diversity of flowering native plants, you know, throughout the season and trust that the you know, just that diversity, all the different insects and all the life in the soil that results from that will, you know, help control the, the flea beetles. So was your place organic when you bought it or did you have to do things to change it? It was not a, a working farm when I got it. It was just a hay field um, that was rented out. So, so yeah, nothing had been added. Um, only hay had been removed for I don't know how many years. So yeah, it was easily certifiable as organic, um, but the soil was somewhat depleted having, you know, had nothing added back in after the hay was removed. Um, so, so yeah, it was a nice clean, clean canvas, you know, mowed empty field. Um, so I could really hit the ground running. It's also a very flat field. Um, so yeah, certified organic um, pretty quickly. And, and uh, but yeah, there weren't a lot of hoops I had to jump through to do that. Cool. But I mean, like, was it hard for you to get things to grow there and stuff like that? Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was, uh, I had very little experience. I didn't have a full season of farming experience when I started out. So I'd say most of my challenges were just due to my own ignorance. Um, so there's a lot of experimenting and trial and error. Um, but I did get some things to grow, um, enough anyway to, uh, convince you know enough csa members to come back the next year um 
so but yeah it wasn't it was certainly not how a many csa members did you start out with i'm fascinated this is like all the stuff i want to hear yeah totally uh i had 30 csa members the first oh my year. goodness yeah that's a lot felt, to try to yeah. did you have help <laughs> did you hire um, people that first year i had like a couple woofers? yeah i had a couple people basically like woofers but um just sort of called them interns and i was up front that i didn't have you know much money at all to pay them but you know if they wanted to come see what it was like to start a farm from scratch um they you know room and board and a little bit of a stipend and and yeah i, I had a a couple uh a couple of motley characters who who i love and and uh you know have stayed in touch with over the years they they came and helped out um and and then yeah from there you know the next years i i hired more and and each year i've paid a little bit better um as the farm's grown um and at this point yeah i have uh, a crew of like i said uh almost nine about nine people um who work full-time april through november and then what do they do in the winter do they yeah, stay so with they, you still yeah they some of them stay here at the farm if they want um through the winter um i don't have you know we don't work full-time through the winter so there's a little bit of work part-time work and then they often will get a little bit of uh you know part-time work off the farm to make ends meet awesome so this is kind of the part of the show i call getting to the root of things which is kind of like a lightning round on other shows so do you have a like activity like a least favorite activity to do in the garden or on the farm that you have to kind of force yourself to get out there and do <laughs> I'd say uh, picking green beans has to be up there. Um, cool. I hate that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know a lot of people who love it. Um, you know, it's great for the first couple pounds. And then, then yeah, they, they get called back the backbreakers for a reason. Uh, so on the flip side, what's your favorite activity? Yeah. I'd love so many aspects of, of farming, but um, maybe just the, the thrill of, um, flipping a bed so transitioning a bed from one one crop to the next um i'd love that just sort of quick turnaround we try to do it you know the same day a crop is out um plant the next crop so the bed doesn't sit empty um again trying to just maximize photosynthesis in in that bed because that's really the root of of soil health is is active photosynthesis that's something i'm really going to try to work on next year i am totally guilty of like letting a bed sit for way too long so that's one of my big goals next year mm -hmm. um daniel what's the best gardening advice you've ever received gosh yeah i'd say um i'm not sure where i heard, even heard this but just to start small i think uh you know if you're a backyard gardener interested in you know going commercial just uh you know start with your a, a few neighbors and friends as a little csa and see how that feels um and yeah i i probably started a little bit bigger than i i should have in hindsight but um i was also young and you know sort of a little bit reckless and full of passion so it worked out um but yeah starting small without you know a huge amount of debt i think there are ways to start farming without you know taking out a giant loan um so to make sort of test the waters, make sure the markets are viable and make sure it's actually something you want to do with your life. Um, I think that would be the advice I'm, I'm most appreciated. 
that's kind of like we've we've thought about trying to you know go to market or my husband's number one goal has always been to grow enough produce for us to like supplement our produce bill for as much of the year as we can and he has what i call is the mini farm which is i thought it was like a quarter of an acre but maybe it's only like a tenth of an acre maybe it's smaller than i think to me it's huge like the first year we planted it he probably grew four times as much produce as he ever had and like now he's it's been I don't know, five or six years, he's really dialed it in where he's producing like 10 times as much as ever. And like, I don't pretty much have to go to the produce market from like April or down the produce aisle from like August till now. Maybe I've been at a lettuce for a while this year, but I wouldn't need to be. I just, that's my bad because I let my bed sit too long. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, What's your favorite tool? Like if you had to move and start all over again, what tool could you not live without? Hmm. Yeah, I'd probably, probably need a handful of tools, but maybe my favorite as as boring as it might sound would be like the wheelbarrow. Um, just the, uh, the ability to, to travel on a wheel with a heavy load and then use gravity to, to just, you know, dump it somewhere. Um, we, we do a lot of human powered work on our farm and, and we use a lot of wheelbarrows um so so yeah i don't know if that's exciting enough answer but that would probably be the one thing i'd take you know actually when my friend lisa flipped the interview when she interviewed me i originally said a shovel and then i was like no it's a wheelbarrow hands down i totally <laughs> agree um yeah. So let's say uh, for a farm sake, you could have five tools. Like what, are, like what are some of the essentials you feel like on your farm that you can't live without? Like what are some that just you guys use every day? Yeah, if I had to do five, I'd say, yeah, wheelbarrow, a, a bed prep rake. I like the wide, the wide rakes from, from Johnny's. Um, I'd say an earthway seeder, uh, the direct seeder, you know, the push, the push hand seeder. Um, Let's see what else. Maybe uh, tarps, uh, a tarp, a silage tarp as a tool to um, control weeds. Um, you know, when beds get away from us, we just you know drag a tarp over them and let the sun cook them for a little bit, and and then pull them off, and the weeds are all dead. Um, oh, I and, totally agree. <laughs> yeah, super super useful. I got a, um, I scored a, um, you know, like the thing on the highway. What's it called? A billboard tarp. Yeah. Um, and that was just amazing last year. And then my husband has two tarps, so he got like half the mini farm covered. And to me, it's the best when like the stuff that he's going to put in the ground in June. So you have like from March through June, you know, all the stuff like the green beans, the things that can't take a frost to cover it and not have those weeds come up. I just, it was so huge last year. Just what a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. It can, yeah, definitely save a lot of time. Uh, dealing with weeds yeah and then at our scale you know we are a commercial farm so we do use um, a bcs walking tractor so the two-wheeled tractor that we walk behind um i so know i want that's one a of useful those. tool uh, with the flail mower especially i tried to tell my husband to get one and he bought a big tractor and he has yeah. yet to use it <laughs> it's been in the yard for two years has not been used because I can't remember something happened the first year and it was like 
it was too rainy or something and then he i I can't remember what happened and then last year he just didn't even because the tarping thing was so good Mm -hmm. he didn't need it right but i think that bcs walking and especially like we have a little meadow that i'm hoping someday we're gonna be able to fence in and plant um it would be really good down there Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah it's it's a versatile tool because it has the power takeoff that you can switch out implements you can even put a a snowblower on it for the winter for instance what about a broad fork i could i couldn't live without a broad fork i'm like torn now that we have a broad fork between the wheelbarrow and the broad fork for my tool but i feel like for some reason for me although i don't know why i think a broad fork would be easier to replace which actually it's not (laughs) although now g martin 48 has a really did you see his new products he came out with i was just looking at it yesterday no what is it he has a really nice looking broad fork. It's $249, but it's like got really nice wood handles. The um, Cause the one thing I have seen, like the, I scored one on Amazon for $99 and I can't even believe I hesitated. And I wish we had two, we had one for our garden and then one for Mike's mini farm. Cause we're constantly carrying it back and forth. I want two of everything, one for his mini farm and one for the garden beds at the house. Uh-huh. And um and he and yeah g martin Fortier came out with a new broad fork he's got one of those rakes you were talking about i think he's got like four of those different rakes it's just a few tools um and then he came out with like a line of clothes like aprons and market you know i don't i don't know i didn't really get to look at the site too much last night but i know jesse's been talking about it on the podcast and then i mm-hmm. got an email yesterday but yeah he has a really nice looking broad fork there Nice. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. Um, we actually don't do all that much broad forking, though. Um, we did more, um, you know, years ago. But at this point, our soil is healthy enough that um, the the microbial life, the 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 soil biology, actually loosens the soil on its own, um, which is sort of like a biological uh, tillage, if you will. Um, so, so yeah, I think as as the health of the soil increases, even broad forking becomes unnecessary amazing uh so daniel what's your favorite recipe you like to cook or eat from the garden gosh yeah this time of year i'd say uh just roasted roots uh we have a ton of root crops in the in this in storage so just going down and picking a medley and chopping them up coat them with olive oil and salt and pepper and roast them in the oven yeah you know what i did yesterday or the other day i roasted or sauteed beets and coconut oil oh my goodness Mm. i couldn't believe the difference that made compared to usually i use like avocado oil or olive oil but it just like it made them um crispier and just i love golden beets yeah roasted roots Mm. yeah uh how about a favorite internet resource where do you find yourself surfing on the web gosh yeah i'd say um instagram probably more than anything um yeah. I think I've connected with a lot of different farmers on Instagram. Um, just, uh, you know, you can search hashtags or, uh, or just, uh, what hashtags do you like to search? Gosh, um, I'm exposing myself. I don't actually spend that much time on the internet. Um, but I, let's see, I, I guess just like no-till or no-till farming, um, or, uh, biodiversity or, you know, hedgerows or interplanting some of those those terms can pop up some really uh sort of experimental innovative uh farmers uh sort of 
toying with those those different practices awesome uh how about a favorite book or like a reading material like what are some of your favorite gardening books yeah well i guess i should shamelessly plug my own book that's coming out or that just came out <laughs> um the, absolutely yeah. well we're going to talk about that and just okay cool but do you well, have a book that inspired you absolutely yeah lots of books um i'd say one near the top would be um one straw revolution oh uh, this is yeah. awesome we yeah. just talked about that on the last uh the last interview i haven't posted it yet but oh nice yeah it will come yeah, out it's a, the it's one a straw revolution one. one straw revolution by fukuoka um yeah just really inspiring um not just for farmers, but just as a, as an approach to life really um, is uh, yeah, is really good. And um, you know, I love Wendell Berry. I love Wes Jackson. Um, their writing really resonates with me. Um, more, more recently, um, Farming While Black by Leah Pinneman is a really, really great one. And, and uh, sort of exposing uh, sort of a historical absence of, of a lot of, uh, voices that have that have been here a long time um, that we don't often listen to in the mainstream um so yeah i definitely recommend her book awesome i've been uh, wanting to buy that uh i just reposted i interviewed her uh, a couple of years ago but i just reposted it like last month so i just re-listened to it i kept thinking she was a rock star millennial but she's not i don't think <laughs> yeah she looks back, like, i feel like she looks uh she super looks young and they're 20 years younger than she is. She has a lot of wisdom. Yeah. So I've been wanting to read that. Uh, so tell us about your book. Usually I ask if you have some business advice, um, which you could tell us that too. And then tell us about your book. Sure. I guess business advice. Gosh. Yeah. If you want to, I'd say if you want to farm for a living, um, you know, start trying to figure out steps to do that. Um, you know, follow your, follow your passions. Um, and, and then, yeah, again, start small. You don't, you don't have to have everything figured out and, you know, take out a huge loan to, to get started farming. Um, there's, you know, there's land for lease or creative arrangements to, um, you know, just use unused land in, in your area um, or you can join forces with other young farmers and you know form a cooperative there's so, so many different ways to get started farming so I'd say you know go for it in, in whatever way makes sense for you um, that would that would be my advice uh, and then yeah in terms of my book I it basically shares my story getting started um, you know how, how it worked for me the ways the ways I succeeded and some of the ways I failed and, you know, learned from my mistakes. Um, and then so also how was your like table of contents laid out? Gosh. Yeah. Let's see if I can remember this. Uh, it starts with sort of my uh, sort of values, farming values, uh, philosophy of farming, and then uh, goes into some of the soil science of, of, you know, healthy ecology. And then chapter three is uh, sort of, starting out how to how to get access to land and and you know build the farm um and then yeah it goes into how to form raised beds you know our, our different our system of no-till permanent raised beds um how to plant how to it covers the whole our whole operation basically from starting seeds in the greenhouse transplanting uh irrigation 
keeping things weeded, um, integrating cover crops. There's a whole section on, on integrating livestock and cover crops and multi-cropping and, uh, you know, diverse uh, hedgerows, beneficial plantings for, for insect habitat. Um, what is a hedgerow? So a hedgerow is just a line of, of shrubs or trees that, uh, you know, is not a, not a cash crop. So almost like a windbreak, um, just lining a field border, if you will, that is intentionally planted. That's, that's my understanding, at least. Okay. It is kind of what I thought. I was just wondering, if maybe I didn't know what it was. Yeah, I think it's a somewhat loose term. Um, yeah, because yeah, a hedgerow might be like a line of, you know, 60 foot trees, or it might be a line of five foot tall shrubs and you know those both get well that was what initially popped into my mind like my mom along the side of her yard there's a row of bush hedges bushes and so that was what i was thinking and then i was like whoa hmm, is that what he's talking about but it kind of yeah. is yeah um, totally. i'm really interested in perennial or um what it, a pollinator borders like when i went to the farm on the roof in brooklyn they have this most it's just the most gorgeous pollinator border all around the edges of the farm of just snapdragons and calendulas and flowers to you know bring in and sunflowers and and different just it's just so gorgeous and just so you know i love that it brings in the beneficial insects and pollinators and butterflies and bees and Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it brings in the humans too. Uh, it's a beautiful, it makes a beautiful place to be, which attracts not just customers, but employees and, you know, makes me want to spend more time out in the gardens. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say that's a big draw of, of beneficial plantings is just to make the space uh, more hospitable to, to all, all the different creatures. What about like uh, what uh, you were saying? There was a chapter on your irrigate. Like, what do you do for irrigation? Is that a hard part? I always feel like that's a struggle of ours. Yeah, I think it's it's built up as like this huge hurdle for farmers um, to get over, and and it can be complicated, but it doesn't have to be. Um, so I tried to sort of break it down in that chapter of like, you know, everything from everything I learned, just the simplest approach to a really res resilient permanent irrigation setup because um, that's one of the real benefits of no-till is that we don't have to move all the pipes out of the way like all the all the sprinklers and is and that what you use live in place do you, do you use pipes or do you use um what are they called soaker hoses or like an, yeah like we use a little bit of drip drip tape um but mostly we use overhead irrigation um micro oh, sprinklers do? they're called yeah like the wobblers wobbler uh -huh. sprinklers that's um, what they use on the firm and the roof too mm, nice she yeah, was like really the little great. wobblers and i didn't know what they were <laughs> <laughs> wobbling totally. that's the that's their official names wobbler they do wobble and you don't worry like that doesn't cause like the leaves to get wet and then like does any of that problem it does yeah it causes the leaves to get wet which can lead to foliar you know diseases um but for that reason i try to just irrigate at night when mostly the leaves are wet anyways with dew um you know in our climate we have warmer days colder nights almost every night in the summer we we get a pretty thick layer of dew on all the leaves anyway so i figure applying more water at that time isn't increasing the the moisture on the leaves 
Um, and then, yeah, I set the, I selected the size of sprinkler nozzle so that it puts in about an inch of rain um, down over eight hours. So I can turn it on right before I go to bed, get up in the morning and turn it off. And I've, you know, applied an inch of water to the fields. Man, Daniel, you are just dropping golden seeds like crazy. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, what else? Do you want to tell us anything else about the book? Did, we, did I interrupt you? Did you finish even all the chapters? Oh, yeah, I guess there's a little bit. Um, yeah, there's a, a chapter on marketing, um, you know, the different models of marketing through CSA, farmer's market, and um, natural food stores. There's uh, talks about scale too, just the importance of staying small. I think there's a lot of sort of hidden costs of scaling up that we don't often hear about in our sort of economic uh, value system. Um, you know, bigger is often touted as better, hands down, but, but really there's a lot of overhead and um, administrative work that starts to accumulate and grow as, as scale increases. So, you know, finding that sweet spot of scale, um, I talk about that. And, um, and then yeah, I just can't believe, and you're making enough money off of three acres of production to have nine full-time workers. Yeah. Yeah, we are. And that's and granted, so awesome. I mean, yeah. like green jobs, saving our planet. Like, oh, <laughs> I just, I love so much feeding people healthy food. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's uh, in many ways it's it's a dream for sure, um, and yeah, a lot of you know part of their compensation is that they get you know housing and and food from the farm, um, which which helps. Um, How do you where do you house them? So yeah, the farm came with an old farmhouse um, that has you know can fit five or six people in it. Um, so we've renovated it over the years, um, and then we built another structure. Um, with a commercial kitchen and an apartment up, upstairs. Um, that's where I live with my family. Um, so yeah, we, we fit a lot of people on the farm um, and that enables us to, to grow intensively like we do um, and sort of have a community atmosphere throughout. I keep thinking like the number one thing we should build here is like a, a kind of like a public bathroom that would be that has like a really nice shower bathtub like because then if we had like like so of course this year in in march i sign up to bring in woofers and i just thought if my husband could have some help we could really plant a lot more food in his mini farm than he can do i mean he's getting older he's 67 so it's a lot of work for him to do by himself and so we actually got woofers to sign up and then i was just too scared with the COVID thing to have them come. But on our property, I mean, they would practically have to come. They would have to camp. We, we kind of looked for a camper or they could bring their own camper. But I, just, I keep thinking a really nice bathroom. And I also was thinking then if we had dinners, because I think that would be a good way for us to get started would be with like dinners because we, we have a really nice place here. But I feel like, like, do, do you think that's just totally absurd? <laughs> no, I think um, I think building the infrastructure to make people comfortable and, and wanting to come to your farm is, is great. That's really what I've focused on from the beginning. Um, you know, I still don't pay, you know, a huge amount um, 
yeah but room and board is a lot like that was the other thing like i like when i posted on the woofer thing i thought families i was like oh like if we had a couple because for one it's really cold here in the spring at night and so Mm -hmm. if somebody was camping i thought well two people would stay a little warmer in a tent or even a camper i mean i guess if a camper you could have a fire but um because i've tried to sleep outside and like the super hot months of like august I bought like an outdoor tent I thought would make like a really nice outdoor bedroom. And it was just so cold. I could not stay out there by myself. Like at two in the morning, I kept ended up coming in. Like it's cold. It's probably cold there. And so I was just, I forgot where I was going with this, but like, yeah, we have like six woofers that really wanted to come. I felt, and I just thought, you know, it would be good. My husband has so much knowledge. I mean, I always started our podcast thinking my husband would, it would be his show and he would teach people had a garden but he's really shy he at least lets me take videos of him now in the garden doing it but anyway um yeah i just uh i'm curious like like what like what infrastructure like what would be the first thing that you would build like would you do the walk-in coolers or like do you have hoop houses do you have things like where things are growing you know wind low tunnels or high tunnels or any of that kind of stuff yeah yeah, we have um, we have high tunnels. We're putting up uh, a fifth high tunnel, so we have five high tunnels um, with crops in them. But yeah, in terms of the first thing, I think moving on to a new piece of land, like figuring out some basic accommodations for for people to live um, or stay or be comfortable, um, is probably the first priority. But then, yeah, seedling greenhouse to to propagate seedlings. Um, you know, even if it's small, uh, and then I'd say that would be number one probably. And then, yeah, I went without a walk-in cooler my first season, but that certainly would be nice to have early on is a walk-in cooler. Um, a hoop, you know, a hoop house or a high tunnel is, is great for summer crops. They, they really grow a lot better, at least in our climate, um, in undercover. Um, what kind of yeah. crops do you keep in your hoop house? Tomatoes? Yeah, so we do two high tunnels of tomatoes, one of cucumbers, and one of ginger and turmeric. Oh, do you like growing those? Yeah, I love, uh, I actually love all those crops. Yeah, but especially uh, ginger is a great crop for us. Um, you know, it's a tropical understory crop, and yet we grow it here in Maine, so that's kind of fun and exciting each season. And then do you put all those things right in the ground or do you have like beds permanent beds in the hoop house or how does that work yeah we have the same system of permanent beds um right in the ground in the in the high tunnels as well as outside well cool all right is there anything else you want to tell us before we get to our final question and then you can tell people how to connect with you um gosh no carry on (laughs) okay so it's kind of a doozy if there's one change you'd like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or a project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Yeah, yeah, that is a big one. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think my my understanding and awareness around a lot of things has really increased this year with the, the different social movements and uh, just the, uh, the heightened emotions of, of the pandemic. Um, 
So I would say the if there's one thing I would want for everyone is to think more holistically about the sort of environment or you know environmentalism. Um, I think we need to realize that uh, ecological issues and social issues are intrinsically linked. Um, so it's I don't think it's responsible to sort of separate them from each other. So you know the social issues of uh, you know land land access um, or food sovereignty um, or grappling with our you know the history of this this nation and um, you know farmers on this continent are largely uh, uninvited guests farming on um, what could be called stolen land from indigenous peoples um, and also uh, a long history of exploitation of labor um, through slavery and even even now in many ways through underpaid labor of, of mostly uh, people of color. So I think grappling with those roots is actually the same topic as grappling with the source of our ecological issues that we're currently dealing with. Um, I think, you know, the exploitation of land and the exploitation of people go hand in hand and they can't be separated. Daniel, you're the like epitome of why I love millennials because listen to those golden, I, I mean, it's just, it makes my heart feel good. And that's why I love my podcast because my guests and my listeners are just amazing people who think like I do and just really care about our planet and the people that are on it. So uh, tell listeners, tell them the title of your book again and then how they can connect with you. Sure, it's called The No-Till Organic Vegetable Farm. Um, my name is Daniel Mays, and uh, they can connect through our website, uh, frithfarm.net. So my farm name is, is Frith, that's F-R-I-T-H, and frithfarm.net is the website. Um, Instagram, we're at Frith Farm. Facebook, Frith Farm. Um, so yeah, connect with us online. Where did the name come from? Yeah, it's actually the name of my great grandfather's farm in England. Um, so I, I carried on um, that that tradition. Um, it's an old English word for uh, comes from the same root as friend. It's sort of a word for sanctuary or um, considering the well-being of others in our in our choices. So are you going to be taking um, woofers in? next year or you already have your team are you looking for people in the spring yeah so we we take on apprentices each year we call them apprentices because it's a commitment for um you know april through november um, which is often longer than woofers want to stay um, so it's a full-on apprenticeship full season um we're our crew for next season is pretty much all set already we've already done a lot of our hiring um but on our website we have more information about that program if, if anyone's interested Awesome. Daniel, thank you so much for sharing with us today and just being such an awesome dad and um, farmer and steward of our planet. And just, I, I can't thank you enough. And you are going to be the very first episode of season three. And I can't think of a better way to start it off. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for your, your passion and positivity. It's, it's great. Thanks. And listeners, you know what I'm going to say? get his book give him a five-star review on amazon because we need everybody reading that book and sharing that knowledge and learning how to no-tell so thank you daniel have a great day
Thanks, Jackie. You too. Listeners, have you heard my most recent interview with J.M. Fortier? Did you know that he started an awesome new venture called Growers and Company, where they have a magazine that's printed that comes out twice a year that highlights the amazing farmers that he's taught personally. So you're going to learn from people who are practice, putting his practices into place on their farms. If you want to be a better farmer, you definitely want to subscribe to this magazine. That's going to be like a coffee table item on your shelf. And then the other thing, part of Growers and Company is there, he's created tools that he uses on his farm that he's like studied. You know, he got to travel all around the world when he wrote his book, The Market Gardener. If you don't have that, you absolutely have to get a copy of it. But he's he's he got to go travel to all these farms and then he would look at tools that they had in the hardware stores or using in these other farms, brought them back to his farm, you know, talked to a developer, came out with some really cool tools. Like he talks about his broad fork. The handles are just wood and that helps it make it light, but it's sturdy. It's just the exact kind of broad fork that I want. Um They've got other really cool weeders and different things. And then he's got farmware that he designed that will keep you dry and keep you out there. I know with my, one of my big barriers was my garden shoes. So he's got boots and just great things that are stylish, comfortable, but most of all, they're going to keep you warm and dry when you're out in your garden doing all that hard work. So growers and company growers.co check it out get something for your favorite gardener definitely get a small scale farmers are changing the world t-shirt for your favorite farmer marker vendor do you belong to a csa i'll bet you want to get them a christmas present this year it doesn't have to be on time i know it might be late when you're hearing this but Make sure you support growers.co. Um, their stuff is super affordable. The Canadian exchange right now. Um, I just bought something for someone, um, a present for Kathy from the composters because I go to her laughter yoga with her. And I think it said it was like $25 and then, it, but it only took $20 out of my bank account. So I, I probably shouldn't be talking about the Canadian exchange, but I know his things are affordable. I research broad forks and what they cost. I, you know, it, it's a great deal. You will get so much use out of that tool. Um, so support growers and co. Get your copy of the organic Oasis guidebook available today from Amazon for just $26.95 and it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own organic oasis. Um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here, okay, what Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden, and just, um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for Mother Earth. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. 
Thanks again for listening and remember grow local.